Welcome back, sister. We're so blessed to have uh, the Nelson family here. I know they get embarrassed when I say this because they're humble, uh, but I'm just giving them room to grow in their humility by calling them out. But um, you have blessed our church with worshipful music. And uh, you notice that there's no drum kit up on stage, no smoke machine, um, no torn blue jeans or craziness, because we're not here to be entertained. We're here to worship the risen Savior who has saved our wretched souls. Yes, you had the wretched soul. I know. I'm an expert in wretched souls, and the Lord in his mercy saved me. And I just want to praise him. I want to worship him, the, the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings. And I know you're here for that, too, because if you were here for entertainment, you'd last half a Sunday. Um, but we're here for eternal, uh, foundational, glorious things. And we have fun because we have the joy of the Lord and we have true love for each other. And you know that I can be goofy up here, but deep down inside, I, I am so serious about worshiping my Lord. Um, he's my king, and he's my savior, and I hope you feel the same way. Just some announcements. Um, in your bulletin, there's a bunch of them that you can look at, but some I want to highlight. Please RSVP for the Nelson well, what is Fall Fellowship at the Nelsons. And when you're there, take time to get to know Blake because he was complaining last week saying, all I get to do is ride on the tractor going hay rides. <laughs> Nobody talks to me. Or words to that effect. But uh, he actually is a very nice guy. Can I get an amen from this corner? <laughs> um <laughs> I, enc I encourage you, come out. It, it's worth the drive. It, it's worth just getting to meet people outside of looking at the back of their heads in a sanctuary or the few people you can talk to after the service. And we're actually thinking, elders have been talking about even having a greeting time before the service, maybe not every Sunday, but just so we get the chance to meet people that we don't normally do because you guys sit in the same pews all the time and I'm stuck sitting back there in the only open seat um, there's a fellowship meal next week featuring casseroles Sharon can you make a peanut butter and jelly casserole okay and moms and dads youth we have youth choir practice after the service today so plan on that and on a personal note, uh, I just want to say thank you from my wife, Gail. You have blessed her, first with your prayers. Um, prayer is sometimes an intangible activity. And I know you've been praying, but there have been tangible results. The peace of Christ has just flooded her soul. New Testament reading this morning is from <clears throat> Luke chapter 10. Jesus sends out the 72. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, 
into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers unto his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatsoever house you enter, first say, Peace be into this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter into a town and they do not receive you, go into the street and say, Even the dust of your town that clings on our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom and than for that town. Woe unto you, Chorazin, woe unto you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades, that one who hears you hears me and the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me the 72 returned with joy saying lord even the demons are subject to us in your name and he said to them i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven behold i have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and <clears throat> over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. <clears throat> in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things that have been handed over to you are to me by the Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's go ahead and pray. Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful that you've looked down upon our terrible plight and <clears throat> plucked us out of the miry clay, Lord, that you sent uh, someone to come and to <clears throat> preach the gospel to us, Lord, or to give the gospel message, some obedient servant. Lord, we just pray that you'd help us <clears throat> to also be obedient to the heavenly call or to spread the gospel message to those lost souls around us, Lord, who you've chosen. Lord, we just pray that you would bless now this time, this morning, as we gather together and uh, come to worship you, to lift up your holy name, and to glorify 
the Father. We just pray that all these things would be done and found acceptable in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take our hymn books and let's stand this morning and turn to number 49. And let's sing to the Lord, I sing the mighty power of God. For the Lord is a great God. Psalm 95, 3. number 108 108 the wonder of it all what is man that you you care for him Hebrews 2 6 Thank you. 
Good morning, church. This morning, we are going to be reading through the book of Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. That can be found on your pew Bible on page 962. When we were last reading through uh, Acts, we were following Paul as he ran into some difficulties with churches, uh, or Jewish synagogues, rather, in Asia, and or uh, near near Greece, and um, this morning's reading, he'll be interacting with some Gentiles, the Gentiles of the city of Athens, and we'll see a little bit of a different interaction that he had with them. Uh, the Jews at this time had been riled up by and, and viciously opposing Paul, so such that they were running him out of town with violence. Um, but the men of Athens react in a different way, and Paul reaches out to them in a different way. I think there are lessons that we can learn when we are uh, evangelizing. Let's go to the word, Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Amaris, and others with them. 
we see in verses uh, 28 and 29 that Paul makes reference to uh, cultural norms, to poets, to um, features of the society that they were living in uh, to point them towards God. The men of Athens already had the foundation, the common grace of uh, God's wisdom to say there is something and you know that this something exists. Turn to it. I will inform you. And so I think we can also use that to, uh, to direct people that we encounter to uh, turn to the word of truth, to find out those things that they already know in their heart, uh, that they are already being condemned by in their heart. So I would encourage us to all um, reach out to those that we encounter uh, and point them towards the word. Um, as we go to the Lord in prayer, I wanted to reference, uh, I came across a book of a prayer of confession in the Book of Common Prayer that was referenced to me, and I want to incorporate that into our prayer this morning. So um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the tremendous blessings that you give to us, Lord. We thank you for the gifts of love and fellowship and grace, Lord God. We thank you for the gifts of healing and protection for our sister Gail and for traveling mercies for those who had been gone in previous weeks and are now returned, for those who are still on the road, for Pastor and his family and the Whites, Lord God. We ask that you would bless them with your presence, bless them with your joy, and bring them back safely to us. Lord, we thank you for these gifts that you give to us generously, Lord. But we also come to you in confession that we do not deserve these gifts. We are not meriting these gifts, Lord but you give them freely to us through your abundant mercy and your grace. We praise you, Lord, for your tremendous uh, gifts. And in that, we confess, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Father God, we also lift up to you the lives that we are giving, uh, the lives that we are living, Lord. We give to you those lives as we go out into the, uh, the rest of this day and the rest of this week. We give them to you as we interact with our brothers and sisters in fellowship this morning, we ask that you would uh, be honored through our interactions. We ask that you would be honored through our interactions with the strangers we meet, with those we encounter at our work, with those we encounter uh, in our chores, Lord God, that we would look for opportunities to preach your truth, to share your gospel, to witness, to call those that we encounter to repentance, Lord, to love them with the love that you have placed within us, Father God, we ask that you would um, enable us, strengthen us to go about your work, to honor you, to raise up the children you have blessed us with in the nurture and admonition of your word, Lord God, that we would be um, good stewards of your word, that we would be doers and not merely hearers only, Lord. We ask that you would bless the teaching of your word this morning to our lives. We ask that you would bless Paul as he brings us uh, doctrinal truths and wisdom that you have uh, 
uh, shared with your church uh, through your word, Lord, that we would uh, be impacted by the truth that we hear, that we would carry it with us into the week, and that we would do all things for your glory, in your name, Christ Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me again and take your hymn books and let's turn to number 80. Number 80, God leads us along. Through grace we can conquer, defeat all our foes. God leads his dear children along.
Let's turn to number 585, 585, count your blessings. Our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1, 3.
Good morning. Uh, amen, Pastor Andy. We don't want uh, smoke machines. We want to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray uh, that we would ascribe to you the, the glory uh, due your name and that we would uh, count our every spiritual blessing in Christ uh, such as that we have such a great Savior and uh, that we have uh, a church uh, a body of Christ that, that you have promised to uh, always be with and that you have promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against. Uh, we ask that you would, uh, that uh, your spirit would uh, accompany the uh, preaching of your word today and uh, that you would uh, allow our hearts to uh, open your law and see wonderful things. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. When I was in college, I read a biography on George Mueller. I was very inspired by his life, but also almost jealous of some of his accomplishments. Now, for context, this was in the 19th century, so he was a contemporary of Spurgeon, and he lived at the same time uh, as Charles Dickens, who wrote Oliver Twist. Um, he took care of many orphans just by praying, because he never once asked anyone for money, but just by praying, uh, in today's dollars, he brought in millions and uh, millions of dollars. And, but that's not even all that I'm uh, almost jealous of. Uh, when he got to age 70, he'd read the entire Bible a hundred times. But then by the time he died, he read it a hundred more times for a total of 200. And that wasn't because he just retired at age 70 and took it easy. At age 70 is when he became a missionary, and he ended up uh, preaching over, over 10,000 times in his life. That is, it's quite inspiring uh, to me. But if we rewind in his life a little bit back to when he was 24 years old, uh, he was not yet uh, a Calvinist. Uh, at that time, he said, before this period, I had been much opposed to the doctrines of election, particular redemption, which means uh, limited atonement, and final persevering grace, uh, so much that uh, I called election a devilish doctrine. Uh, but what changed for him uh, over time uh, was bending his will to the standard of sola, subscura, uh, sola scriptura, uh, to conform his thinking to the teaching of the Bible. Uh, he wrote, God then began to show me that the word of God alone is our standard of judgment in spiritual things. And so what he wrote about next in his uh, spiritual journey at that time, now I was brought to examine these precious truths by the word of God, uh, being made willing to have no glory of my own in the conversion of sinners, but to consider myself merely as an instrument and being made willing to receive what the scripture said, I went to the word, reading the New Testament from the beginning, with a particular reference to these truths. To my great astonishment, I found that the passages which speak decidedly for election and persevering grace are about four times as many as those which speak apparently against these truths, and even those few shortly after, when I had examined and understood them, served to confirm me in the above doctrines. Uh, as to the effect of which my belief in these doctrines had on me, I am constrained to state for God's glory that uh, though I am still exceedingly weak and by no means so dead to the lust of the flesh and to the lust of the eyes and to the pride of life as I, as might I, and as I ought to be, yet by the grace of God, I have walked more closely with him uh, since that period. My life has not been so variable 
Thus I say, the electing love of God in Christ, when I have been able to realize it, has often been the means of producing holiness instead of leading me to sin. Oh, it's just uh, so that changed uh, his life, uh, this man that uh, inspires me so much. As Christians, we're obligated to love truth, uh, especially truth that is uh, presented to us in Scripture. Uh, but that testimony I read from George Mueller, it also gives us a hint at how practical these truths about the doctrines of grace, about God's sovereignty and freedom to save, uh, are to our daily lives as uh, disciples of Christ. If truths like these are indeed taught in Scripture uh, over and uh, over again, it's not ideal for our spiritual development to just kick against those goats. And it won't do to just ignore these issues because they're controversial either. Uh, Every significant Bible doctrine uh, has uh, become controversial at some point in church history. Uh, And it also, uh, and also an attempt at just Avoiding theology actually just leads to bad theology. But luckily, we have a pastor at our church that faithfully and exegetically marches uh, straight through books of the Bible each Sunday. If you think about it, a fairly high percentage of the scriptures that I read last week were already covered by Pastor Wayne's exegetical sermons. It just inherently gives a balance uh, to what God wants to say to us. Uh, What I've been doing is going through these doctrines of grace that are summarized into five points with the acrostic tulip. Again, uh, John Calvin, he was already dead for 50 years by the time these five points were formulated, but they're often called the five points of Calvinism uh, because those Reformed believers wanted to communicate their continued adherence to these points in contrast to uh, Arminius and the uh, the Remonstrants that, that stopped believing these five points in the early 17th century. So that T in tulip stood for total depravity, which simply means that the sinner is dead in sin. Ephesians 2, uh, it says it twice. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. And also Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. There's an enmity there. And that inability, uh, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot please God. And that inability to please God, it includes an inability to please God to please God by repenting or believing. Uh, so if you ask, what makes a difference between the believer and the unbeliever? It wasn't the initiative of the believer. The credit doesn't go to the believer for having a better response uh, when what was needed was that resurrecting faith as a gift to a dead man. Though if we go back into Ephesians 2 again, God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. God loved us with a great love, and that made us alive spiritually. Really, you can summarize a lot of these ideas under this one uh, somewhat radical statement. Regeneration precedes faith. R.C. Sproul called it one of the most dramatic moments in my life, he said, uh, when he saw his seminary professor write those words on the chalkboard in a seminary. Regeneration precedes faith. That bold statement might sound counterintuitive, uh, but it's the inevitable conclusion of what we just read in Ephesians 2. Regeneration precedes faith. It means that uh, we need to have that resurrecting grace in order to have the capacity to believe. Uh, Paul teaches 
uh, even when we were dead in our trespass, God made us alive, so that by grace you have been saved. Our Lord Jesus taught uh, regeneration precedes faith uh, when he said that, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again to Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can also see regeneration precedes faith, uh, just even in the verb tenses in 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes, present tense, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So if you are a present tense believer now, you must have already been born of God in the past. So if you're believing now, you have been saved in the past. So that's why you could have summarized the sermon last week by saying, salvation is of the Lord. Praise God. So last week was that you in Tulip called unconditional election. Uh, Again, uh, the key point here is that God uh, didn't choose to save any of us because we were better or uh, more special or more spiritual than any other person that ends up never repenting or uh, believing in Christ. Being uh, finite creatures, there's only so much uh, that we can understand about God's secret uh, designs uh, for history that he has had since the foundation of the world. But since he did have that secret design for world history, we must maintain that God's uh, electing some unto salvation was what we call unconditional. That means that the elect were elected by God's grace, not by any goodness in us. And that's perhaps why that T of total depravity comes first. There was no goodness in us. If you look at a collection of filthy rags, you're probably not going to pick out your favorite out of the filthy rags. And Romans, sorry, Romans 9 teaches this, this over and over again throughout the chapter. In verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election uh, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. There was a secret, wise, and good purpose in God's election, but that was not based on any relative merits or demerits of this person or that person that we might perform in the course of our lives. And that election also doesn't have anything to do with God looking down the corridors of time to predict those who uh, will believe in Jesus and elect those who choose to be saved. Uh, that would be God electing those who elect themselves. Uh, that would be God choosing to use his sovereignty to set his sovereignty aside, but why? To glorify the autonomous free will of man. Now, we sometimes see this corridors of time theory in Rome, right there in Romans 8.29 when it's abused. As the verse says, for those who he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, those who he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, verbs uh, have a direct object. Like, uh, if you have the dog bites the mailman, that action verb is bites, and the object of that biting is the mailman. Uh, but with this verb foreknew, the object is not a plan of salvation. The object is not uh, a list of the people who will say yes to Jesus. Uh, the object is a people that he loved. You probably you know, notice from reading the Bible that we have that connotation of knowing and loving going together in Scripture. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Genesis 4.1. Uh, 
Obviously, there's something going on there that's more than just information. Uh, God said to the nation of Israel in Amos 3, You only have I known out of all the families of the earth. Now, it's not that God was ignorant of the geopolitical situation at the time. His knowing Israel was his special, even unconditional love for them. God was clear that he didn't choose Israel because they had you know, overcome sinful nature in some way. The ongoing need for their bloody sacrifices year after year uh, proves that. But God clarifies this uh, unconditionality in Deuteronomy 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. Uh, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. Now, if you look at that closely, it's what's called uh, tautology. Uh, Tautology means circular logic. Now, I talk about this word actually so much that even my five-year-old knows what tautology means. Uh, Because one night Luke said to me, uh, do you know why I want a milkshake? Because I want a milkshake. And uh, that's a a tautology that that goes in a circle. But uh, let's read that Deuteronomy 7 again and see that tautology there. Because what he says is basically, I love you because I love you. It was not because you were more in number that the Lord said his love on you, but it is because the Lord loves you. That's that, I love you because I love you. That was Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. Uh, I love you because I love you. Uh, So at its core, this agape love has an element of uh, tautology to it, Uh, tautology enabled by the atonement of Christ. So if you think about election from a biblical and and from a God-centered way, uh, the hot question is not about why didn't God choose to save more people or different people. Uh, instead, the hot question would be why would God save any sinners at all? That's what we're amazed by. It's not unjust for God to condemn the rebel sinner. But if you think about it, it would seem to be unjust for God to just willy-nilly pardon the rebel sinner if not for the cross. So with the cross, Romans 3.26, God might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God can still be righteous when declaring the sinner righteous if that sinner is in Christ. But uh, people, are, people are going to make object- objections to a presentation of God's comprehensive, robust sovereignty. Uh, Paul, is, as he often does, he introduces potential objections, and, and he responds to them in Romans 9 there. Uh, he does this two more times in Romans 9. In verse 14, uh, he says, uh, What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'll mercy who I'll mercy. And again in 19, he sees an, predicts another objection. Uh, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Has the potter no right over the clay? Now, I want to briefly make a couple observations about these kinds of objections we see Paul responding to. First, now, these are the objections. It's the exact same things that Arminians 
uh, argue when they argue against Calvinists. So really, it's the Arminians that are arguing against the Apostle Paul himself. And second, if you look at that from the other angle, these objections wouldn't even make any sense if Paul had just made an Arminian-style presentation. Because if Paul had explained these kinds of issues uh, in the same way that an Arminian would, no one would make any objections. Uh, so the Apostle Paul uh, is, uh, lines up with reformed theology because we try to be scriptural. But uh, the way, instead, the way we approached unconditional election last week, instead of spending time in Romans 9, was from the perspective of God's decree for all things in history from before the foundation of the world. Uh, in Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And in verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. We looked at the same teachings uh, about the T and the U of tulip straight from the lips of our Lord Jesus. In John 6, we saw depravity. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Uh, that's 665. And from Jesus, we saw election. All that the Father gives me will come to me, 637. Well, last week, we ended in John 17, seeing the same concept in the prayer of Christ there. Uh, when, uh, when he asked, uh, uh, when, uh, asked to glorify the Father, when he will give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's 17.2. And we're going to pick up in the same chapter, right where we left off, uh, because this chapter, John 17, uh, along with Hebrews as well, uh, this is the chapter that solidly converted me into embracing this L in Tulip. Uh, but first, uh, it's useful to sp- spend some time to clarify some things about this uh, controversial doctrine. Unfortunately, this uh, L, or this limited atonement, it might be the, the least popular and the, the most controversial out of uh, all of these five points. And even sometimes you see Reformed believers uh, shying away and hes- too hesitant uh, to deal with it, uh, almost becoming uh, whispering Calvinists. Uh, to add to the confusion, a couple decades ago, Norman Geisler, he tried to redefine terms, uh, and he started calling any five-point Calvinists an extreme Calvinist. And if you stop believing in at least one of the points, then, then you're a moderate Calvinist, as he tried to uh, just change the definitions of words. Uh, because he would start with uh, rejecting the L, and he called himself a moderate Calvinist. You also uh, see you know, misguided theologians that mistakenly conclude that Calvin himself would have rejected the L in Tulip. Uh, so it's important to, to clarify definitions and, and reframe the debate uh, in, in a fair way. But conventionally, the, the two sides of the debate are kind of described like this. On one side, Arminians believe in universal atonement and emphasize that Christ died for all. And on the other side, Calvinists believe in what's often called a limited atonement, that's the L, uh, and emphasize that Jesus died for the elect. Uh, the first thing we need to observe is that the term limited, it sometimes, it sounds negative, uh, as if we were trying to limit uh, what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, almost like a limited atonement is some kind of like a tiny atonement. But uh, actually, uh, many prefer to use the term definite atonement uh, instead as a, as a better name for the same doctrine. 
the term uh, definite atonement, it, it helps emphasize God's intentional, precise purpose in the atonement with Jesus dying on the cross. And really, uh, if you think about it, the only people who really actually have a truly unlimited atonement are the universalists, are the people who think hell will be empty and everyone will make it in heaven. That's an actual unlimited atonement. Uh, otherwise, you're going to run into some kind of a double jeopardy problem because why are there people in hell if Jesus died for them too? Uh, so really, both sides limit the atonement in some way. Uh, if uh, the reform position limits the scope of the atonement, what the Arminian position does, it actually limits the efficacy of the atonement. And, and that's an indicator that this gets to being a gospel-adjacent issue. The, the doctrine of uh, definite atonement uh, in Reformed theology, uh, it's compatible with the penal substitutionary theory of atonement, which is it's essentially just the heart of the gospel. Uh, when we have that uh, important term, penal substitution, that, that penal part, that is talking about uh, like that uh, divine courtroom kind of an idea where God declares us guilty as sinners or not guilty in Christ. Uh, Romans eight thirty three, uh, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies or declares not guilty. Who uh, is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Uh, and so that's that penal part. It's a you know, courtroom, guilty, not guilty idea. And that substitution part is that he died in our place, is all that means. Uh, in Isaiah 53, said, he was pierced for our transgressions. Uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that uh, has laid on him uh, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, these ideas that are at the heart of the gospel, really they're only consistently compatible with definite atonement. Now, it's easy to find Arminians out there that thankfully are inconsistent enough to believe in penal substitution, but it's inconsistent uh, when they do. Uh, because when Arminians appeal to that unbiblical concept of prevenient grace, they believe that all men everywhere are basically liberated from the bondage of sin enough to be able to respond positively to the gospel of their own accord. And there is a, a hugely troubling problem with this theology, if you think about it. So what's this huge problem? When every man everywhere has the potential to be saved, the cross doesn't actually save anyone. For the Arminian, the cross doesn't save anyone, but instead makes men save a bull. Uh, it doesn't redeem, it makes men redeemable. Uh, the cross doesn't provide propitiation for sins, but merely grants the potential that the wrath of God might be averted at some point. Uh, but when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. Jesus didn't say from the cross, I did my part, now the ball's in your court to finish the job. Uh, that's what it would have to be from that Arminian view. Uh, further, you know, I'm also not enamored by the term limited atonement because you can make the case that uh, the, the reform position is uh, almost something like a, an enhanced atonement because of uh, the blessings that we have from the cross. So, and that's why I'm trying to think of some way to describe it and just trying to use the phrase enhanced atonement. Uh, it's because we believe so many things that the Arminians believe, we agree with them, but we also believe more things that they fail to believe as well. 
uh, when Arminians say that we should go to all the nations and promiscuously proclaim uh, the gospel to all of mankind, we agree with them. When Arminians quote Jesus who said, uh, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, we agree with them. When Arminians say that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, we agree with them. Uh, So, Uh, In that sense, when they're talking about Jesus being for all, in that sense of the word for all, we agree. Anyone that comes to Jesus uh, will not be cast out. Uh, But but Scripture sets forth Christ as a a perfect Savior. It, It teaches us that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, Hebrews 7, 25. The Arminians essentially don't believe that one. But we do. So it's, we agree with these things and believe more as well, that the cross gives us these, uh, all these blessings in Christ. Uh, so that's why I'm trying to use this phrase, uh, in, enhance atonement, to talk about the Reformed position. We, we universally agree that all people do need to hear the gospel and universally agree that any who repent and believe will be saved. But we also believed in penal substitutionary atonement, in which the cross actually did save some believers. Uh, that's why Ephesians 1 can teach that God, uh, as we sing about this, uh, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So let's think about a comparison, for example, with Peter and Judas. So the question is this. Did Jesus die for Peter uh, in the exact same way that he died for Judas? Arminians would have to say yes. Jesus died in the exact same way for both. But Calvin, Calvinists know that the cross purchased for Peter grace that Judas never did and never will experience. Uh, in their attempt to try to emphasize an equitable distribution of grace that's universally applied uh, with their atonement, the Arminians, again, it waters down the accomplished efficacy, that, that, that effectual getting it done of the atonement into a mere potential for salvation. Uh, so when we look at the text of Scripture, uh, this is a question that we have to have in mind. Did the cross supply grace to the believer that was not given to the unbeliever? That's the key question. Uh, that's the dividing line uh, for this controversy. Uh, the way that B.B. Uh, Warfield uh, framed it was this. He asked, it, would you rather have a narrow bridge that goes all the way across a chasm, or would you rather have a wide bridge that only goes halfway across? So let's now uh, return to John 17. Uh, As we saw during the uh, recent uh, series here through the fourth gospel, uh, the structure of John 17, it's very clear. The ESV translation, it neatly divides the chapter into three paragraphs based on who our Lord is praying for. First, he prays for himself in verses 1 to 5. Then he prays for his disciples in verses uh, 6 through 19. And then he he prays for uh, for all believers uh, of all time in verses 20 to 26. So uh, what we're going to do is look at verses 17 to 19. So this is in that uh, second paragraph. So what Jesus is doing here, uh, he's praying specifically for his disciples. And actually, it was about two years ago that Pastor Wayne took us uh, through this chapter. And uh, one thing he explained very well uh, about this passage is that this base meaning uh, is uh, that uh, he was praying for his disciples uh, but there's 
you know, aspects of correspondence where it's possible to make uh, application to us as well. For example, these 11 men, the remaining disciples, uh, they needed prayer because they um, had a capital A apostolic mission to go into the world. Uh, but there's, uh, there's also a sense in which all of us, every believer, uh, is we all have a ministry. Uh, we all uh, have to obey the Great Commission. So, it's, so even if it's praying for the disciples directly, there's, it's possible to make application that's more general. So here in the second paragraph, uh, Jesus has three different prayers that he prays for his disciples, and the third and final one of those is here in these verses. So uh, let's start by reading through it uh, in the ESV, uh, starting in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So I've got three points for us to consider as they relate to our central question of definite atonement, and I'll spend a big chunk of that on just the the first point. Now, I almost uh, gave my first point uh, named after the Blues Brothers quote, uh, we're on a mission from God, but I changed it to to have more parallelism with uh, between all three points. So we'll call uh, point one, the apostles have a job to do. So uh, a neat observation that Pastor Wayne made a couple years ago in verse 18 is uh, that you can hear the word apostle uh, from the Greek word for sending because apostle just means sent one. Uh, The verb to send is apostoleo, and the noun for the sent one is uh, apostolos. Uh, so in verse 18, God uh, sent Jesus as his apostle into the world, and then G- also uh, Jesus sent these 11 men as capital A apostles uh, into the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Uh, but that's not all with this mission of the apostles. We also see this concept of I'm on a mission from God from, from a word that's repeated three times in these verses. Uh, it could be translated e- either as sanctified or as consecrated. Those are, those are both the same word. Uh, the ESV footnotes also remind us that y- you could translate it as set apart as well. Uh, so this word here, you know, it's part of, of a family of words that relate to the word holy or agios, uh, hagios. Uh, you might have heard the word uh, like hagiography to talk about uh, the biography of a saint or someone that's highly revered. Uh, Though we know from just reading scripture that the, the two primary meanings of holy, it deals with either you know, the, like a moral and ethical righteousness or, or holiness, or, or it might deal with being set apart for a special purpose. Uh, both apply to God uh, when you know, the angels uh, worshipfully declare him to be holy, holy, uh, holy. Uh, when, and when we read about, for example, God who dwells in unapproachable light. Uh, last week, I talked about uh, Van Til's two circles, or big circle God, little circle creation, uh, because it conveys that our creator is absolutely in a category of his own. He's holy. Uh, our holy God is, you could say, he's a totally other than. He is both pure, uh, and he's also set apart as utterly distinct from creation. Now, let's uh, read these three verses once again and note this triple repetition of these words in the ESV. Uh, Verse 17 again, sanctify them in truth, sanctify, your word is the truth, 
as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. Then verse 19 has two more. As for my sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So translating always gives us, you know, some hard choices. Uh, It might not seem ideal for the ESV to take the same word here and translate it as both consecrate and sanctified uh, in that same verse, verse 19. But maybe what the translation committee might have had in mind was to just make it very clear that Jesus did not need to, like, clean up his life and make better ethical choices. It wasn't that kind of sanctify. So they just really forced us into think he consecrated himself with a special purpose. Because, of course, the Son of God lived a perfectly sinless life. So at least in the beginning of verse 19 there, we know that I consecrate myself. It's leaning towards a meaning that's not about a moral improvement, but about being set apart for a special purpose. Uh, And the context there is, you know, it seems to be indicating that the same meaning might also be there for the end of verse 19. That they also may be sanctified in truth. Because in verse 18, the apostles have this mission, this purpose, uh, being sent uh, into the world, uh, set apart for the mission work into the world. And uh, with another translation, uh, another helpful thing that Pastor Wayne did a couple years ago is that he read from the NET translation because it it translates those three words the same way all three times. So so I'll read it uh, from the NET real quick. Verse 17, set them apart in the truth, for your word is truth. 18, just as you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. Then verse 9, and I set myself apart on their behalf, so that they may too be truly set apart. Now, in light of, you know, verse 19 or verse 18, uh, I might have largely seen the prayer in verse 17 set them apart in truth uh, to also be missional and purpose instead of, you know, personal holiness. But uh, Pastor Wayne, uh, he opened my eyes to the the possibility that in in verse 17, the prayer there, that we could see that as the the personal moral moral holiness going on there as well. Uh, Why? Because they have to be distinct from the world. They are not of the world, verse 14. Uh, And Christ asks, he prays, that God would keep them from the evil one in verse 15. So if these apostles are being sent into the world that hates them and is going to kill them, uh, that certainly requires strong uh, and unflinching moral character. So it makes me wonder almost if uh, these words of Jesus are yet another uh, double meaning in, in the fourth gospel. Uh, they must be sanctified in personal holiness in order to be sanctified, set apart for the ministry to the world. They must be distinct from the world in order to be in the world and ministering to it. So if we uh, we'll compare these ideas to the Old Testament, uh, Aaron and his sons, they were consecrated as priests. Uh, Exodus 29, verse 1, Consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And it wasn't just the person uh, that the family was set apart as a special service for serving the priesthood. Uh, their clothes were also considered to be set apart as holy. Uh, and uh, the altar and uh, the tent of meeting and the utensils that they used were all uh, considered to be holy and set apart. Like this isn't just a, a normal, uh, th- uh, this one is going to be used for the temple sacrifices. Uh, it's uh, set apart in that way. But uh, and when we're looking at the context of the Gospel of John, 
uh, when he uses this kind of an idea, it, it often does has this consecration for mission. You could really almost see the, the incarnate Son of God as a, as, a, as a missionary in the Gospel of John. Uh, for example, in 1036, we have the, the same word uh, where Jesus calls himself him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. That incarnate Son of God was on that mission. And we could see the, the same thing connecting the, the prayer in verse 17 to the sending in verse 18. Uh, the prayer set them apart in truth uh, and that missional sending, I sent them into the world. Uh, so, so now that we've started by looking at some of these things that are in the text, uh, now we can start to connect what's in the text to uh, definite atonement. So that means uh, we would hope to see in these verses uh, both that targeted particularity of the atonement and also the, the efficacy of the atonement that accomplishes. So first, let's observe the efficacy of the atonement that it accomplishes. Uh, so what was the basis for Christ being able to pray, sanctify them in the truth? Uh, it certainly wasn't because the disciples were choice meats, if we go back to last week. Uh, the disciples were so prone uh, to blunders that they weren't even able to figure out that Judas was the bad guy. They uh, Jesus didn't necessarily choose them because they were the most dependable, perfect people uh, that ever lived. Verse 19, uh, it tells us that the mission of the disciples is made possible by the mission of Christ. In verse 19, I consecrate myself that, in order that, they may also be sanctified in truth. So that single word, that, it makes this connection. Uh, Jesus sets himself apart in order that the disciples may also be truly set apart. Uh, so what is this mission of Jesus that makes this possible? It's a mega theme of the fourth gospel. The mission of Jesus is that road to the cross. As early as John 3.17 says that a God sent his son into the world in order that the world might be saved through him. And going to chapter 6, Jesus says this kind of language a lot. I have come down from heaven that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And Jesus actually starts referencing the passion even as early as chapter 7 in John. 7.33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. So how does he go back? to the Father who sent him. The only way back to the Father is through the cross and resurrection. And in chapter 3, it's very clear. Uh, we, we see this uh, focus on uh, his mind and on John's mind. Uh, 13.1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So now that we've kind of uh, defined this mission as, as a passion towards the cross, so let's look at this connection again in, in verse 19 of chapter 17. 17, 19, uh, one more time. I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus dedicates himself to living a perfect life and culminates it with his sacrificial death on the cross, and this is what enables the mission to send the apostles in the world. Uh, that means this upgrade from disciple to apostle 
was purchased at the cross. I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. Uh, so that's why I tried to use this phrase, enhanced atonement, that because God has, bl- uh, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1.3. Uh, so we see once again that Jesus died for Peter in a way that he did not die for Judas. Uh, Jesus died for Peter uh, so that he would be redeemed from hell and also receive this uh, apostolic mission uh, for the rest of his life until he was executed. And uh, second, let's also look at uh, the targeted uh, particularity in these verses. Uh, with everywhere we observed last week, it uh, should be easy to see the same pattern again here. Last week we saw in verse 2 this distinction between the large group of uh, everyone, all flesh, uh, with the small group of those that is given to the Son. Uh, we saw uh, Jesus' authority over all flesh, but the gift of salvation just to the elect. Uh, 17 verse Two, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, now let's look for the same kind of large group, small group, a distinction in verse 19. Uh, because it just tells us for whom Jesus went to the cross. Uh, for their sake, I consecrate myself. Uh, so it is for... Uh, the same uh, of these disciples that uh, Jesus goes to the cross, the same group. Uh, he certainly does not say, it's for the sake of the world that I consecrate myself. Uh, these 11 remaining disciples, they're included in uh, this group of uh, those that the Father uh, has loved before time began, elected unto salvation, and has uh, given to the Son. Uh, throughout this whole prayer uh, in this chapter, uh, these disciples he prays for, uh, they're contrasted with the world. Uh, Jesus consistently makes this uh, distinction between the them that he's praying for, uh, the disciples he's praying for, uh, and the world that, that is in an entirely different category. And frankly, oftentimes John tends to see the world as, as such an evil system uh, that uh, in First John uh, he commanded us, uh, do not love the world or anything uh, in the world. Uh, But in verse 14, same distinction. uh, He gave God's word to the disciples, uh, but the world hated them. Uh, We see uh, this intensity of God's love from the focus of God's love. Uh, We see Jesus dying for his disciples, but not for the world, which granted them benefits that he never gave to the world. Uh, That means that what we've seen in these verses is, is definite atonement. And... Uh, it took the longest, uh, but that was the first point, that the apostles had this job to do. And let's uh, call the second point, the high priest has a job to do. So when we read uh, the fourth gospel, uh, John actually reminds us that it was a political and religious uh, scandal that there were two living high priests uh, walking around at, at the same time. Uh, it, it was shameful because it was secular authorities uh, that uh, handpicked both men uh, one after the other, when it was supposed to be a lifelong appointment according to the law in Numbers 3.10. But the real high priest was our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 6, we read this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, uh, not going into uh, a temple holies of holies, but a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. I guess that's an anchor that goes up into heaven. 
where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Pastor Wayne, uh, he covered this idea of Jesus as the high priest in both John and Hebrews, but it's so relevant to this idea that uh, it's uh, worth revisiting now. Luther called this chapter of John 17, uh, he called it the holiest of holies because of of the staggering significance uh, in seeing this much of the Son uh, talking to the Father. Uh, If you look at uh, the header, uh, that uh, the ESV translation gives to this passage of John 17. It, it rightly calls this chapter the high priestly prayer. It's generally what this chapter is called. But uh, have you ever thought about or, or wondered why? This is the chapter called the high priestly prayer uh, because uh, there aren't any sacrifices going on quite yet. To figure that out, we just need to think a bit and, uh, and ask, what is the job of the high priest? The high priest basically had two jobs that were intimately interrelated. The, the high priest would pray for God's people, and he would make sacrifices for God's people. And since Hebrews 10.1 says, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, uh, we see both of these roles of praying and sacrificing for God's people fulfilled in Christ. Uh, as believers, the eternal and unchanging uh, Son of God will always be our steadfast uh, intercessor. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 again. Chapter 5 of Hebrews, it, it confirms that, yeah, it is the job of uh, every high priest to make these sacrifices for God's people. 5.1. Uh, every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Uh, and a big idea in Hebrews, this repeated refrain of Hebrews, is that Christ offered himself as the ultimate, decisive, perfect, completed, once-for-all sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. That part at the end there about how the sacrifice of Christ secured an eternal redemption, that's devastating to the Arminian position. Uh, The Arminian position can only deal with this potential salvation that we activate with our free will. Uh, It's not able to account for uh, an accomplished and secured redemption from a perfect Savior. And that can bring us back to why this can be called the high priestly prayer here in John 17. It's what the high priest does. He prays for God's people, and then he offers sacrifices for them. Um, And that is what what seals the deal scripturally for this idea of definite atonement, is that these two groups, those he prays for, those he sacrifices for, it's it's the same people. Uh, These two priestly functions, you could say they're coextensive. Same people, same group. Uh, The people that the high priest prays for are the exact same people who make sacrifices for. And this this chapter, John 17, it tells us clearly who Jesus intercedes for as a high priest. Let's read it in verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. It's very cut and dry. Uh, Jesus continues uh, 
uh, in the rest of verse 9, uh, to once again link those he prays for as high priest to the elect given to him by the Father. Verse 9 again, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Uh, so if these two priestly functions are coextensive, that means that if Jesus, the high priest, is praying for the elect and not praying for the world, that means that Jesus is about to die on the cross for the elect in a way that he does not offer himself to the world. Back in verse 19, we could see this. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Almost like Romans 8, this is uh, like a golden chain of sorts, no, no dropouts. Jesus dies for this group, and they will be sanctified, each one of them. And of course, you see the, the same thing in the Old Testament uh, with uh, the Passover and the Levitical, Levitical priesthood and beyond. They never prayed or did sacrifices for the, for the Egyptians, Canaanites, Ammonites, etc. It was for the people of God. So that covers the two points, and most briefly of all. So first it was, the apostles had a job to do. Second it was, the high priest has a job to do. Uh, Thirdly, and pretty briefly, the Trinity has a job to do. Now, uh, theologians make a distinction between the ontological Trinity and the economic Trinity. All that means is that the uh, ontological means being, is all it means. The ontological Trinity is... Uh, about what God is, and the economic trinity is about what God does. Uh, the last two weeks, uh, we've been looking a little bit at the, the economic trinity, what God is doing, uh, because the Father gave an elect people to the Son, and none of that was conditioned on the good or bad things that you or I do. But this week, this uh, uh, the inter-Trinitarian cooperation, uh, it's relevant to limited atonement because it allows us to see... Uh, uh, Trinitarian harmony in the plan of salvation. Uh, this makes sense because it, it wouldn't really be possible for there to be any attention or disagreement or cross-purposes within the, peop- the persons of the one being of God. Uh, the Son isn't going to rebel against the Father. Uh, the Son isn't going to implore the Father to save more people or to save uh, different people or less people. Uh, the Son will raise up each and every one that the Father gives him, no more and uh, no less. If we go back to Ephesians 1 again, we could see this Trinitarian cooperation in our salvation. In verse 4, we were chosen uh, by the Father before the foundation of the world. Verse 7, we have redemption in the blood of Christ. And uh, in verse 13, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's the same group of people that the Father chose, that the Son died for, and that the Spirit applies grace to. Uh, John, John Owen wrote a, a decisive treatise on definite atonement. It has an awesome title, too, The Death, the Death, and the Death of Christ. Uh, it's about 280 pages. Uh, it's exhaustively convincing, just step by step. But, uh, and Owen, he goes into great detail uh, emphasizing this Trinitarian harmony that you could have with the idea of definite atonement. And similarly, this, this harmony within God it's what impressed George Mueller to change his view on the doctrines of grace, from seeing it as a devilish doctrine to an instrument of knowing the love of God experientially in his life. It's also this Trinitarian harmony that led uh, 
James White in our day. Uh, he says that the L is his favorite letter in Tulip because of the, the gospel there, uh, although he admits he's probably the only person that ever says L is his favorite because of all the controversy. Uh, so that's it. Uh, that's the three points that we saw here. The apostles had a job to do because they got this grace to serve because of the cross. The high priest had a job to do. He prayed for God's elect before he made sacrifices for God's elect. And the Trinity had a harmonious and glorious plan from before the foundation of the world. And uh, very briefly, we can also see the same kinds of theology in the rest of John and even in the rest of Scripture. Like even in the Old Testament, when it was Eli's kids that had sexual sins and money sins, kind of, I guess people don't really change, God said about them, I will not make atonement for them because they're going to go to hell. So Jesus is, so we know Jesus didn't die for Eli's kids because they're going to hell. Well, if you look at the rest of uh, the book of John, in the very first chapter, look at Jesus' name. You will call his name Jesus. And when this happens in Matthew, it also includes, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus gets this name, Yahweh saves. Not because he'll make everyone potentially savable, uh, but because he shall save his people. If we jump into John 10, Jesus, uh, the Good Shepherd chapter, I lay down my life for the sheep. And it's not everyone that's a sheep. Jesus, with that particularity, Jesus is very clear that the Pharisees, they don't count. They are not sheep. Uh, but it's uh, the sheep he lays down his life for. Many Arminians like to rely on passages like First John, in 1 John 2 that says, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, we definitely don't have time to cover every kind of Arminius objection verse, but we could generally summarize that Usually what's going on there is it, either uh, talking about all kinds of people, the kings and the uh, normal people, uh, or it's talking uh, about these things that we agree with with them, that it's available to all of the world. Uh, but in this case, John has a, a very parallel thought that clarifies in uh, what he means by all the world in John 11 when he tells us that the high priest, uh, the Levitical high priest, uh, accidentally said something that was theologically quite profound. He, uh, in uh, John 11, he says, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also to gather uh, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Uh, so it's, it's an idea that when John says that it's for all, it's for an ingathering of the people of God from all nations of the earth. And it has that particularity that it's uh, the people of God from all nations and this efficacy in that it unites the body of Christ. Uh, that, uh, that it says it will gather into one the children of God. And we see the same thing in the rest of Scripture as well. In Revelation 5, we see the theology of heaven on display. And heaven's theology is probably better than mine. And it once again conveys particularity and efficacy of definite atonement. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open up its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from, or some translations, out of every tribe and language and people and nation. So out of all the nations of the earth, 
it purchased some out of each nation. Those are the sheep. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And finally, let's look at one last example from Paul. Might be able to guess which one this is. Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, it's, a fo- it's an intensely focused love. Now, I might say uh, to each one of you generally, I love y'all for worshiping with me. But if I said, uh, I insist that I love each and every one of you the exact same way that I love Patty back there, you would think that that's pretty weird, that I didn't love her in a special way. And we should allow the same thing for God uh, himself. So let's take a moment now to reflect on our glorious and perfect Savior that lives forever to intercede for us and can save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross and for the wisdom of God that saved a blind sinner like me. Help us to fall in love with the gospel all over again and uh, help us to love uh, this God that so loved a sinful world that he sent uh, his son to die for a people to glorify himself with. Amen. You still owe us two letters, right? The I and the P. We, so you're going to have to come back and finish up sometime. So let's all stand in Turkey 324 in our hymnals. Seek ye first, 324. <laughs> May your soul bless the Lord all the days of your life with all that is within you. May you bless his holy name. May you never forget the benefits of him who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, and redeems your life from the pit. May the Lord satisfy your years with many good blessings and crown your life with his steadfast love and tender mercies forever and ever. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.